Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we review why we only test symptomatic COVID patients with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. We talk with Neri Life Choma, a birth coach, about the time when a woman becomes a mother. There's a name for that, matrescence. And why isn't the American diet good for COVID-19? Dr. David G. Harper, author of The Bio Diet, explains. Trouble getting it up? Erectile dysfunction? There's a device for that, too. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Well, we had a big change in the biggest house, or one of the biggest houses in the world this week. I think a lot of us have breathed a collective sigh of relief. So we know there's hope, and let's hope there's some relief on the horizon with this pandemic as well. Good evening, and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. In a year characterized by masks, physical distancing, hand sanitizing, cleaning like never before, lockdowns, lockdown lovers, increased divorce rates, according to divorce lawyers, so take that with a grain. We've all experienced our own version of this new normal, and we know it's been worse for some than others, but we do have blue sky on the horizon. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and host of this program. I am joined behind the boards by Andrew. Good evening, Andrew. I wonder why they always say it's the boards when there's one board. <laughs> there's one. It's a big board. Don't get me wrong. It's a big board. All right. I want you to know that I just thought I was so cool always saying the boards. <laughs> You're not the only one. Believe me. A lot of people I know will always say behind the boards. There's one. Well, I mean, if you count the phones, there's, I guess, two boards. There's just this okay. one big one that lights up red whenever I turn the mic on. It's kind of intimidating. Okay. The boards it is. Somebody emailed me that one time and I thought, oh, that must be what it is. Okay. I think, I, I think I'm sure that it, I'm sure that it harkens back to a time when all of the stuff that fit in this one board uh, needed about seven boards. I think somebody said if I co-hosted your program with you, the phone boards would light up. That's what they said. Yeah, phone boards is normal because we've got we've got two phones here. Okay, so, so that's phone boards. Those are the phone boards. I am learning this uh, radio broadcasting thing, you know, look, <laughs> all I, the time. Look, knowledge <laughs> knowledge is good anytime, any day, any place, you know. Knowledge is power, and yep. hopefully yep. we are providing you with some knowledge here on the Sunday Night Health Show. And if you'd like to be a part of the show, please give me a call. The number to call is one 877 That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well. Ask me anything or email me in confidence, nursetalk at hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects, this show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. Tonight on the program, we are talking about rapid testing, matricense, the American diet, the phenomenon that women are wonderful. Have you heard of that one, Andrew? Women are wonderful phenomenon? That just seems like a fact. <laughs> like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, that just seems like a fact. Not everybody thinks that, let me tell you. Yeah, I know. Those people are wrong. <laughs> Believe you me. Erectile dysfunction. <laughs> That's unfortunately also a fact. <laughs> exactly. Of course, we talk sex on the program. There is another subject that I was going to talk about tonight. Of course, I can't exactly remember what it was, but I think it was good. Aside from the women are wonderful phenomenon, we are talking about, oh yeah, not so great. Anyway, just how much water do you need to drink anyway? I'm a big proponent of that. Anyway, lots to talk about on the program tonight. Of course, we talk sex. We talk sex every Sunday night on the program. So put those kidlets to bed, grab a cup of tea, glass of wine, whatever suits your fancy, your lover if you have one, because we've got lots to talk about. But right now... And now, Maureen's Health Headline. He, you've heard his voice before. He is the Assistant Professor Canada Research Chair at the University of Manitoba, also a contributor to Forbes, and he is extremely interested in emerging viruses, in particular COVID-19, Ebola, and he also deals a lot in all of these outbreaks of viruses. He is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, and he's on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening from a balmy minus 31 degrees Celsius in Saskatoon. 
<laughs> Not even my Canada goose jacket could deal with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, listen, it's, uh, it, it's a dry cold. So that, that makes all the difference, I guess. I guess, I guess. I don't know. I have an electric vest, battery-operated <laughs> socks. <laughs> I am freezing. My goal in life is to find the warmest jacket on the planet. And I have. I have found a number of them. <laughs> Anyway, it's warm heart, cold everywhere else. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for joining me on the program. So uh, how are we doing COVID-wise across the country, Dr. Kinderchuk? You know what? uh, You know, how do do I say it with uh, with trying to kind of remain an optimist? Um, Listen, I think there are aspects where certainly uh, we're doing better than than maybe we have in the past. I, I think we're... You know, seeing some general, uh, you know, trends starting to, to show decreased, uh, you know, case, uh, not necessarily case numbers, but, uh, you know, decreased transmission in, in certain areas in Canada. Um, you know, but I think a lot of that gets, you know, somewhat put to the sidelines with the, uh, you know, the concerns about the, the B117 variant that we're seeing exactly. in long-term care facilities. Exactly. It just it boggles me that, that we're still at this point where the, you know, the one place we know is an absolute vulnerability for us we are still struggling to, to provide protection for. Exactly. And uh, I, I'm not sure people realize, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the transmissibility, the contagiousness of the new, some of the new variants is that much worse than... Uh, yeah, so, yeah, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, so, so B117 definitely, you know, I think the, the epidemiology um, suggests that, that we're seeing you know, quite an increase. That, you know, the numbers have been a, a little bit all over the place. Um, but certainly, I think we're we're hovering around the fifty percent uh, increased transmissibility, which which certainly, from the aspect of trying to control COVID, uh, you know, makes things a, a lot harder. We you know we still rely on infection prevention control measures, and those things still uh, you know work wonders. But we have to now be that much more um, prudent in, uh, in ensuring that, that we're applying them. Um, the, the kind of the area where we're still, uh, I think, in a little bit gray area, and this, this kind of harkens back to a little bit of data on Friday, is whether or not there is an increase in, in disease severity or risk of, of fatal disease. And there was some data that came out of the UK suggesting that we may see uh, an increase in, in fatal disease from a few different modeling studies that were done. Um, but I think we're still a little bit early. So, you know, the, the variants are, have certainly kind of introduced a new wrinkle for us. Um, now is the time that we have to figure out how to how to decrease transmissibility as quickly as possible. Exactly, and um, you know th- what all this means is that we actually have to make the guidelines that much more stringent. People yeah. have to be that much more careful. I just want to say, if you have a question for Doctor Kinderchuk, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. You know, recently and 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 for a while now, even since some of the restrictions have been put in place about not traveling, about not going out for dinner, about uh, or only with your family, um, and uh, some of the other hanging out with people or going. And being in the presence of somebody for more than 15 minutes unmasked, um, you know, people still are posting on social media their trips and and hanging out with friends. And and I repeatedly hear people saying, you know, well, I I just I I only hang out with these three friends and they're all clean, they'll say, or, you know, they're all good. There's, you know, they're fine. Or they'll go to a hotspot like Whistler, post photographs of that. And, um, and, you know, then they will be shocked because I I am tasked uh, quite often with providing the information that somebody has tested positive for COVID-19. And so I've had a lot of conversations with people and people are stunned. They are, they just cannot believe that they have COVID-19 yet they have gone to uh, chiropractor, physio, massage therapy, um, Whistler, um, you know, other resorts, uh, restaurants repeatedly. Um, so how dangerous of a life is that to lead? And especially when you have a comorbidity like asthma or COPD, how dangerous is that for people? Oh, it's extremely dangerous, right? And I think the, the aspect we all have to consider is that I, you know, and I've said this countless times before. Listen, this is not like Ebola or um, you know smallpox, where where we get some sort of a, a physical uh, abnormality in the majority of patients that become infected. With, with COVID, we still see that the vast majority of people that are infected will have mild disease, if any disease symptoms at all. 
The problem is, is that you can still transmit the virus. So you, you can't rely on some sort of a, a physiological indicator or some kind of you know, intuition that you are now infected. And I think that's the difficulty is a lot of people don't realize how vulnerable we, we all are to, to these types of viruses and, and this one in particular. Um, you know, and for me, I, I look at it not from the sense of, you know, uh, you know comorbidities in my family or, or within myself or, or my spouse, but for those in my community, I, I just have an inherent, an inherent belief. I don't want to be the person responsible for somebody else becoming infected and ending up uh, in the hospital or, or, or worse. Right. And I think we have to take that step back and really think about that as we roll through 2021. Yes, and I get that ex post facto from people who have tested positive for COVID-19. So uh, we're going to go to break, but I'd like you to hang on the line because I have a question for you, uh, and that is, why do we only test symptomatic patients? Um, We want to talk about testing, uh, why only test symptomatic patients, but I do have a caller. I have Jim on the line. Good evening, Jim. Uh, I want to know, um, how come the movie industry is uh, being uh, allowed still to make movies uh, more so than ever, I've heard, and supposedly taking all necessary uh, safety precautions? Well, people in my uh, age range are told we're in mortal danger if we uh, don't take these shots. Okay, that's that's a few questions there. Uh, to the film industry, yes, uh, the film industry is extremely busy uh, here. But the film industry, you know, it's about uh, uh, staying well, you know, keeping well and, and keeping working. And they have very stringent guidelines um, in terms of safety guidelines uh, in uh, in terms of screening and monitoring and having health and safety supervisors and COVID compliance officers to devise uh, policies and procedures and protocols. Uh, they are typically asymptomatic people. They are not allowed on the set if they are, um, have any symptoms at all, in fact. And, and as well, the film industry has set up their own laboratory testing also. Um, and and if they get a positive test at their own lab, they, they do confirm that with a provincial um, lab a labor- laboratory that is, that is accredited. And so, um, you know, yes, hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of people are being employed across Canada by the film industry. There's lots of new uh, job opportunities as well. Um, so they are doing it extremely careful. They are have very, very stringent guidelines. And um, so far, their positivity rate is significantly lower than the general population. Dr. Kendrachuk, do you uh, have anything you want to add on that? No, I, I, think it's, I think it's a great point. I think what we've seen, you know, certainly with, uh, with even some professional sports, is that if you, if you do proper bubbling and you're able to increase the, the amount of testing, and oversight uh, on people that, uh, that that are within that um, you know that area, um, you can actually keep control of the virus, but you have to be able to to have the numbers to to accommodate that. That's exactly correct. Um, but uh, in the general population, you know, it seems the decision has been to um, only test symptomatic patients at a time when the world is at war with coronavirus disease and and this burden of disease. And, um, you know, many places do face uh, a drastic shortage of of testing resources and also, um, you know, the turnaround time, although we've seen a a new rapid test be approved by Canada recently. But why test only symptomatic patients when we know that asymptomatic people can transmit this virus? Yeah, you know, the, the unfortunate reality with this virus, and we, we wrote a, um, a BMJ article uh, about a month and a half ago uh, about this idea of, you know, what we look at in, in terms of, uh, you know, the amount of virus present versus when somebody is able to transmit and when they're fully symptomatic. The, the problem that we run into with asymptomatic uh, people or people in that pre-symptomatic phase is that while they're able to transmit, um, we have this inability to you know, 100% unequivocally say whether or not they are truly positive or, or if they're truly negative because of the fact that we still have a sensitivity issue at the lower end with, with the PCR test. So one of the problems we get is that you can have somebody that may be transmitting even if at a low extent in the population, but they test negative. So does that person now believe that they're negative 
Um, and what would happen if they came back the next day or the day after or the day after that? Um, eventually, they would, they would likely test positive, and you'd be able to pick that up. But of course, the issue that we run into is that you have everybody in the population that potentially is a, a pre-symptomatic carrier, um, and we have a, you know, kind of a finite uh, you know, amount of, of reagents and a finite number of people that can run the test. Mm-hmm. So I think what we've seen are, are most of the health, uh, the regional health authorities um, try to look at this from where we would likely see the greatest chance of being able to get a definitive positive on somebody that, that was being tested. Right. But the issue remains that we, we have that pre-symptomatic phase, and, and that's where we, we have to figure out a way to, to increase testing and, and be able to open it up more widely. I have an email here. Dear Maureen, I was tested positive at one lab and negative 24 hours later at another. Am I positive or am I negative? Thank you, George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great question, right? So it, it, this comes back to this idea that if you're right at that threshold of sensitivity, um, you could have a positive and a negative, and you can't really discern which is the real answer. So, the, you know, we go back to this idea of relying on whether or not there are any, uh, any symptoms that would, uh, that would indicate that the person is positive. But then the likelihood is that they would have to go back for another test. Um, hopefully in that time frame, what you would see is that if, if they still test negative, then they pass the point of being able to transmit because they're, they no longer have virus that, that's being picked up. If they test positive, then now we know, okay, well, the virus has incubated another day. And there, there is a likelihood that, that they actually truly are positive. Of course, in the meantime, you know, everything you know, remains as far as trying to, to keep that person isolated because it's still an, an undetermined uh, uh, positive or negative. Right. So even if they had a third test 24 hours later and it was negative, that you would still recommend isolation? We've got about 20 I seconds left. Point, I, I mean, it depends on the health authority, right? And, and yeah. I think, you know, again, it relies going back to asking, you know, the people that, that are in charge of the testing, what, you know, what, what are your recommendations? Here's my third test, the second negative in a row. Right. Um, what, what are your considerations? Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Kinderchuk. I think we both agree that testing is a moment in time and also really important to wear masks and stay physically distant. 100%. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I am a registered nurse. I know a thing or two about matrescence, but not enough. And I don't think a lot of people know enough about this time of life when a woman becomes a mother. Well, joining me on the line is CEO and trainer at Birth Coach Method. She is Neri Life Choma, and you've heard her voice here before. Good evening, Neri. How are you? Hi, Maureen. I'm very well. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm very we well. We had too. our last conversation when the world was different. We cer- <laughs> certainly did. Yes. Now we're wearing masks over the airwaves. Yes. How are you holding, my friend? <laughs> I'm holding up very well. Thank you so much. Although I have to say, after about a year of all of this, or just under, um, mm-hmm. I collapsed yesterday. And <laughs> I was, as I said, oh. I was pretty much prone all day long. <laughs> But that yeah. was okay. I recovered, went to bed at 8 o'clock last night, and only woke up at 7.30 this morning because somebody texted me. <laughs> anyway. Well, good. And yourself, it's how are you doing? medicine sleep. I'm good. I'm very well. Thank you. That's uh, that's absolutely correct. I'm so glad you're well, and you're right. Sleep is my opiate. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, matrescence. I, I love the work that you do. I think this doesn't get Thank recognized you. enough. Um, that time, that transitional time between uh, when a woman goes from womanhood to motherhood. Now, yeah. we know that it's normal during certain transitions in life, like adolescence. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big transition when a woman becomes a mother. So, that you know, there's really nothing to describe that time period, but there is this term matrescence. Matrescence. Tell yeah. me a little bit yeah. about um, what happens when a woman becomes a mother. Well, the interesting thing is, it sounds exactly like adolescence, right? Because um, we have experts um, telling us that it's pretty much the same as going through the um, transformation of becoming an adult or adolescence. Those uh, transitions are both um, hormone-dominant, 
Um, they're body altering. They're both irreversible. There's no looking back. That's true. Um, they're also a rite of passage for most women. I'd say that um, our, our culture still look at, the, at um, becoming a mother as a rite of passage. Um, they're confidence challenging and they're awkward. <laughs> and um, there is one more thing that actually is present for women as they go toward motherhood, which is also that their social status is changing. So that's on top of all the things that they have in common with adolescents. They also go through um, a social status change, which is um you know, just another level of that ignites so many other changes that are going to follow. So that's a lot to be with. And the funny thing is, you know, when you think about adolescents and matricents, when we're talking about adolescents, we mainly refer to all the behavioral and identity changes of those teenagers. When we talk about matricents, we mainly speak, you know, about the physiological um, changes. We focus mainly on the mother's health, the health of the pregnancy, the health of the baby. And there is a neglect of the identity transformation that we all go through. And and there certainly is a huge identity transformation that occurs. Uh, Having worked in reproductive health and... um, Mm -hmm, I know. uh, I... I used to say, you know, really encourage women to share their labor and delivery stories uh, and to mm-hmm. share their stories about motherhood is equally important because it's not the same for everyone. And it's, um, you know, it's it, people have different feelings about this. Absolutely. And different expectations and in kind of this, you know, although I don't like the word normal, but sort of. If what they're experiencing is normal seems to be a question that they're asking. Um, well, the more we talk about it, the more they will understand it's normal. Absolutely. And so when a woman has a baby, they, as you mentioned, so many changes, physiological, psychological, mm-hmm. so, socioeconomic, uh, social status changes. Uh, what are, mm-hmm. what are some of those, how do those, some of those changes play out? What are some of the physiological and the physical and emotional changes that they might experience? Well, the range of those emotions is so wide. It's crazy wide. Um, They can feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility. After all, they are responsible to to provide for the needs of a helpless baby and keep her safe. Um, That's why it's um, so valuable to help them develop a sense of internal authority, you know, like I'm the authority now. I'm sitting on the adult chair on the parents share and help them, um, you know, as they sit on this chair, they can also feel a loss of um, self-identity until they mentally complete the transformation into motherhood because childbirth is just igniting it. It's mostly the physiological aspect of the transformation. It ignites whatever is going to happen, you know, right after this whole identity transformation is just being just begin, you know, so until they complete it, you know, there will be a time of some loss of self-identity. Who am I? Um, They can feel loss of freedom. Um, They can um, grieve over the loss of their identity as the daughter of, Uh you know, the ability to always rely on the parent, on the mom that is there. Now I'm the mom. You know, it's one of the most profound moments in childbirth when, when women are um, crying for their mom or crying for help or like losing it. And I say, hey, look me in the eyes. You're the mom. You're the mom. Mm-hmm. And then they own the birth, the moment that they understand, oh, it's me, you know. Um, and if, if they are career women, they can feel lost, you know, that has to do with their uh, professional identity. So um, I, the intimacy with the spouse You know, I remember myself losing a lot of intimacy or not understanding that intimacy is going to be different now. So it takes time to accommodate to this. Um, The sense of being um, sexual, sexually attractive can be changed for a while, can be challenged and doubted even. And um, 
also, you know, one more thing that always comes up in my conversations with new moms, you know, because much sense, this whole change is really irreversible and permanent. I feel that a lot of women will tend to confuse the irreversibility um, of this with thinking that all the difficulties that they now feel, you know, with the new beginning of the life, with the new parenthood, like breastfeeding, being sleep deprived, not being able to leave the house, they tend to think that this is also irreversible, that this is also here to stay forever, and it's not. So it's so important to separate the two and say, well, you know, things that we're, um, we need to process, you know, about our, our identity um, are really here to stay. They're permanent. They're irreversible. But those are not. Those are temporary. They're going to go away. You're going to go back to work. You're going to be able to go out with your girlfriends, you know. So that's another discussion here. Exactly. And do women ever talk about uh, it's not what they thought it would be? Or do you, uh, that, that's the first question, I guess. Then I have another question. <laughs> and if you have a question, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Interestingly enough, (laughs) um, because it's not acknowledged, so here's the thing, you know, you go through nine months of uh, pregnancy and you keep coming back to um, the health issues because you've seen your caregivers so many times and it's another screening exam and it's another diagnostic exam and it's all about the health, health, health and we're talking about the physiological health. So, it doesn't sound like the whole process is leading them to understand that there is something there that they need to talk about. So usually they won't. They will not talk about it. And if they do, funny enough, they talk with their doula. And this is why I'm so aware of this. This is why I'm so sensitive to this. And I dedicated my last blog post, you know, to this whole transformation. Because it's not something that women will talk about. And they sometimes can also confuse it with depression, with postpartum depression. And it's not really the same. No, it isn't. Um, But it is a huge transformation. And it's something that we need to identify, which you have done, um, and and recognize and talk about and, uh, you know, share the stories um, amongst women and, and women with their with their birth coaches, with their midwives, with their doctors, with their doulas, whomever, and you're doing such a great job. How can people get in touch with you? Well, birthcoachmethod.com, that's my passion and my mission. Um, I am on a mission here to bring awareness to the fact that women who go through those profound um, experiences of pregnancy and birth can be coached just like Adolescents, you know, they have so many coaches that I, I think we all agree that they survive. You know, they put them on the road, on the track. You know, they keep them safe. Um, they make sure to acknowledge the adolescent challenges and to talk to them about it and to increase their confidence and their belief in themselves. I think that women can actually use coaches that will do the same thing, will acknowledge the challenge and will clarify, you know, where do you want to be, how do you want to feel, and show them the way how to get there and increase their confidence, their belief in themselves, um, their commitment to go through the experience, come out the other side in a healthy way with a positive mindset. Um, So, yeah. BirthCoachMethod.com. That's <laughs> wonderful. Thank you so much. That's Neary Life Choma. Thank you, Maureen. You're so welcome. Such an important subject. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. And uh, today I saw this on LinkedIn. And I thought immediately, ah, I'm going to invite him on the program tonight because I don't know about you, but this doesn't agree with me. Andrew states the same claim. (laughs) What is happening? The American diet, Andrew. Oh, I wish I was healthy enough to be able to do that. I Same. I don't think the American diet agrees with anybody, to be honest. No. 
No, no it, it doesn't. doesn't. I know it really well. The it's dream like, of eating nothing but meat is just a dream. Or like Frosted Flakes, Super Sugar Crisp. I can't do that. It's too sweet for me now, <laughs> which is, I suppose, a good thing. I have a sweet tooth. Some people like savory. Some people like sweet. And, you know, anyway, it, it just... Whoops! There goes that technology again. The chair fell down. If, if, if they made if they made like eighty percent dark chocolate into a cereal, though, I would I would be in trouble. I'm not a huge fan of dark chocolate. I always ask for the milk chocolate. But anyway, yeah, any sweet, give it to me. But um, you know, white bread and um, you know, carbs, potatoes, roast beef, all of those starches. Life. Life, everything. Anyway, so you know what? It turns out the American diet may not be good for the burden of disease associated with COVID-19. And joining me on the line is Dr. David G. Harper to talk about that. Good evening, Dr. Harper. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? Oh, just fine, thanks. Excellent. So you're... Um, you're the title of your post caught my attention today. Um, I know the American diet extremely well, and so do a lot of Americans and Canadians. And that's why we find there are so many people who are living with the medical condition, obesity. So I'll, full disclosure, I did not read the article because I went back to find it and I, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> so I could have sworn that all your posts were and all mine would be right there, but apparently no. <laughs> uh, well, they, I think the post you're referring to is actually an online uh, magazine called Mother Jones, which is actually quite a popular uh, oh, yeah. magazine, and um, <clears throat> reported by uh, uh, Tom Philpott. But, it, but it's based on a study uh, that was done at the University of North Carolina, and, and they also talked to uh, some of my colleagues at John, Johns Hopkins University Center. So um, it, it, it talks about the fact that uh, what may be making uh, the outcomes for COVID worse in the United States, because it's it's about uh, you know twice thirty nine percent higher mortality rate in amongst the U S uh, than it is in the same number of people in Europe, uh, maybe diet related, and I, I would concur that's probably the case, um, largely because uh, the United States is sort of globally famous for being in very poor metabolic health, and that also is related to their diet, which is very high in processed foods, especially sugar-laden foods. And of course, it doesn't help that uh, all the fast foods that uh, Americans have uh, come to love, and, and all the restaurants as well, they're, they're known for large servings and low prices, and lots and lots of Americans eat out. Yeah, you know, I was looking at a commercial the other day, and it, it started off with, you know, it was a burger or something like that, um, you know, which is, it's not what you want most of your calories to come from. But then they showed all the other things you got with a special deal for three ninety nine or something, and it was a huge pop, and it was uh, some kind of donut and then French fries. And <laughs> oh my, so, so it's not so much the burger, <laughs> uh, you know, the meat and the lettuce and tomato, that's probably okay. It, it's all that other... Very, very highly processed, uh, high glycemic index carbohydrate that that really promotes um, what we call the insulin model of obesity. So it promotes the uh, deposition of, of visceral fat, and visceral fat is as opposed to subcutaneous fat, the fat below your skin. Um, this is the kind of pot belly uh, fat, mm-hmm. and 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 that particular kind of fat, which is called a white white fat, um, has a very high density of these ACE2 receptors in, on the cells in, in that adipose tissue, and that's the receptor that the uh, COVID uh, virus attaches to. So there seems to be a relationship between the poor diet, the mid-abdominal obesity or visceral fat, and, and a susceptibility to COVID-19. Now, this is something that occurs at midlife for a lot of people. I get a lot of complaints, mainly from women, from my female patients who will say, you know, menopause hit me bad. I got a big stomach. My 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 abdomen got bigger. Um, or they will say, I'm not no longer attracted to my uh, partner, male or female, because they have a big abdomen, and it's they find it very unattractive, and and they associate it with the fact that it's this either andropause or menopause, but it's largely related to what people consume. Would you agree with that? 
Well, certainly that's my model. I mean, I, the, the book I have, BioDiet, um, and if people are interested, they can see it on the website, biodiet.org, talks about uh, the relationship between a diet and and uh, and chronic disease, and then how you can address that uh, by removing the carbohydrate from your diet. And uh, my wife and I uh, did that almost ten years ago now, and lost uh, I lost about twenty seven pounds of that mid abdominal fat. So it it can be done. Uh, <laughs> it can be done successfully, but but it's um, it's an intervention that you have to maintain. So. I know it's sort of diet season, Maureen, and people are looking for a quick way to lose a few pounds, but we really have to start thinking about weight management um, as fat management and, and uh, getting into good metabolic health, which, which involves a decrease in that body fat, but it also involves improvements in your blood lipid profile, your blood pressure, and your blood sugar levels. And all of those seem to be aggravated by these high glycemic index, high carbohydrate, high sugar diets. So that's that's what we're trying to get people uh, away from. And, and and sadly, you know, when 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 COVID sort of struck, wow, almost a year ago, uh, people started running to the stores and buying bread and making bread and <laughs> all these sweets and cookies. And we, you know, uh, it's a bad joke, but people are calling it the COVID nineteen, which is the nineteen pounds they've put on over mm-hmm. the last few months. And often that's mid abdominal fat and. And and that correlates. If you're seeing that mid-abdominal fat, it's an indication that you are uh, in danger of poor metabolic health, and and that absolutely correlates with bad uh, COVID-19 outcomes. And so it's basically a transformation as well, uh, much like adolescence or matrescence. Uh, It's a transformation to living healthy uh, and making good food choices. And it's not something, I mean, as you say, it's diet season for people, but that's why diets often fail because people, they're short term, people feel deprived. uh, They may still have that addiction to sugar or that craving. Um, But this is really, we actually need, Canada is not really that much better than the U.S. in terms of um, obesity rates, and you know we're getting there. We're 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 getting closer, and and access to processed foods and and um, you know fast food restaurants, and it's it's becoming more popular to eat out um, than ever before. So, what is it that you recommend um, for people in order to be metabolically healthy? Well, I think they have to look at it as a lifestyle change, Maureen. Like you were saying, it's not something that should be viewed as short term. The the diet that we're eating, the standard diet in North America, does conform pretty well with the recommendations uh, from from Health Canada and, and from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is a high-carbohydrate diet. And and what we've been trying, we in the scientific community have been trying to convince the policymakers of, is that actually is making the obesity uh, epidemic worse. You said uh, quite correctly, in the United States, it's now reached, I think, above 75% mm-hmm. of adults over 18 are, are overweight or obese. And in Canada, it's, it's in the high 60s. So we're not, we're not far behind. And, you know, people view, you know, a little bit of a belly as just something that comes with aging. And, and that's a natural thing. Absolutely not true. Uh, you know, you, you should not think of that as a normal part of aging. It's actually a sign of an unhealthy accumulation of what we call um, insulin resistance. In other words, over decades uh, of, of consuming this high-carbohydrate diet, you make yourself insulin resistant, and that leads to what I call um, the other two factors of the axis of illness, which is inflammation, which you feel is pain, and, and, uh, and then obesity. And those three things together correlate with about 70% of chronic disease, uh, including all the main, uh, you know, killers like cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's. And so what, what the great news is, the really good news that we've seen in clinical studies now is that you can quite quickly reverse that. You can lose that body fat. You can improve your insulin sensitivity and you can reduce that inflammation, um, you know, with a well-formulated ketogenic diet. Now, it's not for everyone, Maureen. We've talked about this before. Uh, you need to do this uh, in cooperation with your physician because there are some metabolic changes and, and there are some people for whom this would be contraindicated. Um, but if you're interested, again, you can, you can have a look at my book, uh, which is from our clinical um, uh, diet that we recommend for uh, our studies on women with metastatic breast cancer. Um, and again, biodiet.org is the, is the website. You can go and have a look there. And, and, and that gives you a guide, not just how to 
successfully and safely uh, lose that body fat and improve your metabolic health. But it also tells you why, and that empowers you to stay with that, because this is intended to be a permanent lifestyle change, not a not a short-term, uh, you know, uh, get yourself ready for the beach kind of <laughs> kind of diet. Right. Although there's still time uh, if if somebody starts on it now. I was going to ask you the first step, um, and and that would be I think the first step would be to go to the website biodiet.org, and there is time to have that bikini body by summer, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. No, no. I think uh, this is a great time actually, and and you know that's that's sort of our our own egos at play wanting to look good at the beach and that's great you know if you if you do have excess body fat that's not a healthy state so you, now if it is subcutaneous fat we're talking about the difference between men and women and a lot of women put on extra fat uh, sort of around their hips and buttocks that actually doesn't correlate uh, poorly with health it's that it's that belly fat it's that sort of pot belly uh, i think of a man with a pot belly that's the that's the kind of visceral fat that correlates um uh, poorly with health because it also correlates with something we call non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease, which mm-hmm. creates some issues too. So, um, so yeah, you know, I think it's it's good that people want to lose weight to look better, but they should be thinking about their, uh, you know, resistance to chronic disease and acute disease. Um, I, we don't know yet. It's, you know, far too early to tell, but uh, there is quite a bit of it bit of evidence to indicate that um, that those that are keto adapted might have increased resistance to the uh, not just the infection itself but also that that very dangerous um, cytokine uh, storm they call it uh, and there's a paper actually it comes out uh, I think to the general public uh, in in a week or so but it was done by a group in in France in Nice France that talks about this visceral fat and COVID nineteen, and that's in the um, coming out in the journal Metabolism, Clinical and Experimental uh, on February the first. It's time for the bedroom bulletin because this is the time of night that we go to bed together. Hopefully, uh, I won't put you to sleep because this is really important information. What's coming up here? Because when things aren't coming up, there can be an issue. Uh, hopefully, you don't have that issue, but. Lots and lots of men do over their lifetime, and uh, they can have this issue in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I love this email that I got. Dear Maureen, I am an 84-year-old male having problems getting an erection. Any advice you can give to solve this? Um, of course, the automatic go-to for a lot of people would be the PD-5 inhibitors. Lots of football on today, so you probably saw some commercials around... Viagra and Levitra and Cialis and Staxin. But no, that isn't the first line of defense for me. And, you know, there's lots of side effects associated with those medications, not to mention they are expensive and they can, they can kind of take the, um, pizzazz out of the moment. Um, it, it can spontaneity can be thrown out the window. Not that what I'm going to suggest <laughs> is actually going to be the sexiest either, but you know, there are some ways that uh, we can adapt. Um, first of all, I, I have no idea anything about the health of this gentleman, any issues, if he's having hypertension issues or cholesterol, but it definitely signifies a visit to your doctor um, because there there may be some other issues. There may be t- diabetes type two. There may be an obesity issue. There may be um, you know a, a, it's a sign of heart. It can be the first sign of heart disease. It's the canary in the coal mine, and uh, and so it's often because it's the largest vessel compared with the heart and the brain. It often can be that first sign. So it's very important to work with your doctor on this um, and eat a healthy diet and get some exercise because exercise keeps the blood flowing, keeps the blood pressure down, and uh, keeps your penis looking in the right direction, which is up. Um, but, you know, a lot of guys, I, I, I actually had a, a patient this week and he um, did a virtual visit. I do lots of virtual visits for people, but this one was memorable. <laughs> they all are, um, but this one was particularly memorable. Anyway, uh, you know, it's an hour consult, and, and oftentimes people want to tell their story, and and so he, I mean, he uh, he read poems <laughs> to me, uh, but but in relation to his past lovers, um, he talked about the kind of a guy that he was. He talked about um, that he's a, a one-woman man. He um, he loves romance. He, he told me all about that. And 
you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm realizing that the meter is, um, is running <laughs> and, uh, and I do want him to get to the issue so we can get to the solutions, but it was so hard, pun intended, for him to tell me exactly what was going on. But I could guess from, you know, the little hints that he gave throughout, um, the hour long consult. And then I just quickly slipped in there and said, are you having difficulty experiencing? an erection. And, uh, and, and it kind of caught him off guard. I tried to get it in there at the right point, uh, point in time. Uh, but still, I could tell he was a little bit uh, caught off guard. And he said, uh, yeah, that, that, that is my problem. That is my problem. But you know, so many men are embarrassed about this. And he had actually tried medications and he didn't like the side effects, the flushing, the headache, the heart pounding. Um, and so he wondered if there was anything else that uh, was available. And so something that I suggest to a lot of patients is and and more and more uh, men are ordering these. Uh, it is the vacuum pump. It's the Sinclair vacuum pump for um, to increase blood flow. It's a Sinclair erection pump, so you'll get an erection. Um, but it will increase blood flow to your penis. And so there's a battery operated style, and there's um, a hand pump as well. And, um, and so this works for a lot of guys and it comes with a penile ring, um, that you would put on the, beneath the glands of your penis after the blood flowed into the, your penis as a result of the vacuum pump. Uh, and you leave that on for 20, no more than 20 to 30 minutes, but, um, you certainly could, um, do that in private and then, um, be with your your lover, your partner, um, or you know it can be used as a sex toy, basically as well. Guys, you often complain that I don't talk about enough male sex toys, but there you go. Um, that is definitely uh, considered one, and um, and so it's something definitely to consider um, because so many men like it because there's very few side effects. And you know what? They're not easy. They take me a little while to actually get. I do have them available on my website, um, but they take a little while. And I'm always giving out womanizers and, um, and you know, I do that. Those are, those are pretty easy, <laughs> but this one is a little harder for me to get, but you know what I am going to do? I'm going to order one just to give out on the air. So stay tuned over the next several weeks, um, to, and I will be giving that out for, to some lucky, lucky, lucky guy. Um, anyway, or a woman who wants to present that to her partner or, uh, you know, guy who wants to present it to his, his partner as well. Um, there's also something called, uh, you know, we, there's lots of talk about injections because we have the vaccines coming up and we have people who have fear of needles. And, and I often think, well, you know, guys inject into their penises all the time. So what's everybody afraid about with the, uh, <laughs> with the vaccine? I, I always have that thought. I might actually express that depending on the, um, I might actually express that to somebody depending on the person, you know, if they, if they can understand, but seriously. And, you know, initially guys are like, Oh, you know, if they have erectile dysfunction, uh, although sex is a great motivator, I tell you for men anyway. Um, but, uh, there is a medication, Alprostadil, that can be injected very slowly into your penis. You are shown how to do this. A demonstration is done. I will instruct men on how to do this, or your doctor can, can do this. This is typically done between 10 minutes and half an hour before intercourse. Uh, you want to, it takes about five to 10 seconds to completely inject the dose. 10 seconds is a long time, guys. I get it. Um, because I'm, I also do COVID testing in the narrays and it's 10 seconds each narrays. And I tell you some tough men start crying. Uh, I've got Max on the line. Hello, Max. Yeah. How are you? Good. Thanks. How are you? I'm okay. I've been listening to your talk for the last 10 years. And the other day you mentioned something about the dryness of vagina, that cream. Yes. I just missed that name of the cream. It's actually a gel. It's called Femme, P-H-E-M-M-E. -M -M -E. That's the hormone-free one. This is for women, correct? 
Yes. Yes, it's the hormone-free one, and it is over. So it's available over the counter. But then there's also one by prescription that many women need, and um, there there variations on estrogen, estradiol, estrone, um, and so estragine or Premarin cream, which is a prescription. Um, so uh, you a woman would need to go to her doctor to get a prescription for that, and it's lifelong therapy. But uh, it's estrogen is the hormone regulator of the vagina, of the urogenital tract, actually. Mm-hmm. So, and she doesn't want to apply anything down there, which is frustrating for me because I can't get there. I said, then what's the use? So I said, okay, I'm going to the doctor. Let's see, prescription doctor, whatever it is. He said, whatever you get, I'm not going to put anything there. I said, oh, my God, okay. I'm trying to see something else. I'm trying to use, try to manipulate her to get that cream there. Well, here's the thing. It's not just about sex. Uh, for a woman, uh, personal moisturization is critical to prevent uh, urinary tract infections because women after the menopause, which can happen at about age 52 for the average, uh, it's the average age of onset for menopause, but women can get dryness and that can lead to recurrent urinary tract infections because of the decreasing estrogen receptors. And so a woman over the age of 65 is actually at great risk of urinary recurrent urinary tract infections and sepsis and actually even death. So it's not just about sex. It's really about sexual health or sex and health, however you look at it. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Because whenever this goes and finishes, she said, I look at her face, it's like, like you know, crying and I have pity on her. And she said, that, okay, why should I do it when she's getting hurt and I'm getting my pleasure round done? Right. I just pull out and I said, okay, you know, what? I'll just come out. Yes. You know, uh, many women fear inserting something into yeah. their vagina, but this is extremely healthy. It's very important. So many women face this. There is a ring that can also stay in for three months, and it actually takes about um, two to three months to optimize. So for the medication per, per the vagina to work uh, at its um, best, um, and, and it's also lifelong therapy, but very, very, very important. And, of course, important for uh, intimacy and relationships. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I'll see well, what I can do. Good luck. Good luck. And I'll be looking for your womanizer. Okay. So I, can, I can give it to her on Valentine's Day. Oh, how nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sure, we'll be having a big promo around Valentine's Day. Yeah, so let's see if she gets the thrill with that. You know, I will also say that um, estrogen will help women to experience orgasms faster, sooner, and more. And more often. Um, so, you know, a lot of women will complain at the menopause that they it takes them longer to experience an orgasm or they, they're not experiencing them anymore at all. But, uh, you know, that estrogen is so important for the clitoris and for the, the, um, the urogenital tract as well and the vagina, painful sex, and also experiencing orgasm. So, um, you know, the, the womanizer is a miracle device. <laughs> Yeah, but I've been hearing this talk on the radio every Sunday. <laughs> I made a, make the attempt to listen to your talk from 8 Thank o'clock you. to 10 o'clock. Oh, that's so sweet of you. Nice to know I have a listener out there. Oh, no matter where I am, I'm at home for that time Aww. on Sundays. Thank you so much, Max, and thank you so yeah. much for your call. Good luck with everything. She can email me if if she likes. Nurse talk she, at hotmail.com. She's very back forward one. What's that? I'll try to do that and see. Yes. I'm a registered nurse. It's all about health, Max. That's it. It's all about health. Anyway, if you have a health question, feel free to email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. I did finish the injections into the penis, did I? Okay. Anyway, but uh, lots of guys, uh, you know, get used to that in there. It's extremely effective as well. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.